I've hit record, so if you make any comments that you don't want on the record, then don't say anything. <laughs> okay, so baptism, first of all, in the scriptures, there's a Greek word, baptizo, and baptismos, and those words have been transliterated into our word baptism. So you can you can hear how close those are in Greek and in Hebrew. There's some words in the Bible that the meaning of which perhaps was either disputed or it was a more precise or theological term. And so rather than trying to translate it over into the other languages, they just transliterate it. And then you have to look to that particular word to understand what it means. Well, the word baptizo, baptism, it means to dip something into something else. It means to immerse something into something. It means to cover something with something. Okay. And there's some dispute about all this. Uh, you know, if you're a pedo baptist and you believe you can sprinkle babies and whatnot, but, but in a general sense, those are the main meanings of this word. There's an old Greek text. It's not a, a Bible text, but it was an old pickle re- recipe that an ancient Greek had put together. And he uses that word baptizo to describe immersing the cucumbers into the brine. And you baptize your, your cucumbers to turn them into pickles. Okay? So I guess that's, I guess that's what happens to us when we're saved. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're turned into pickles. No, sweet pickles. We're sweet pickles. We're not, we're not sour pickles, okay? But we are, we are changed. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, immersed into relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay. It is important as we consider baptism from the scriptures that the word baptism does not always refer to water baptism. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Again, the word for baptism means to dip something into or to immerse something into or to cover something. And so it's not just water. Whenever we think of the word baptism, we almost always think about water. We think about what we did when you guys went in and you were immersed under the water. Not necessarily. It doesn't have to involve water. Matthew chapter 3, and look down to verse 11. John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. Okay? Now, what does that mean? Baptism baptism with the Holy Spirit. Somebody, all those who are saved, Scripture say, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, had been baptized into one spirit. It's talking about spiritual baptism, namely that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have been put into a right relationship with God. So we have been placed in a right relationship with God 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, or baptized into the Holy Spirit. The second here, baptism of fire. What do you think fire represents here? No. What is judgment? Judgment. I think it's referring to judgment here. Because on the positive side, baptism of the Holy Spirit. On the negative side, baptism with fire. And in this case, what that's talking about, I believe, is that there's a final day of judgment coming. Christ will will judge all, and they will be ultimately immersed in the lake of fire. The judgment of God. Yeah. Andy, did you have a question? Could you give me that reference again? I'm trying to write stuff down. Matthew 3.11. Matthew 3.11. Thank you. I was thinking, you know, like when you put metal in a, into something to go, go through the impurities, that that's what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Right, and and there could be there could be uh, sometimes where that imagery could be used. The Bible does talk about the refiner's fire, and that we could be refined through afflictions even and purified by that. But I think I think in this case it's referring to to judgment because John. Also says John the Baptist also says when preaching to the Pharisees and others, he says, "Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance." And every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is going to be chopped down at the roots and cast into what? Into the fire. Okay. So I think I think it's referring to that. Um. Okay. Baptism. From our perspective, as we look at the scriptures, and this is what we believe in our congregation, baptism is an outward work that reflects the inward work that Christ has done. Baptism, therefore, reflects that we have been united in Christ Jesus with his death and his burial. So in Romans chapter 6, let's look over there for just a second. Okay. I write kind of slowly, so. Well, I'll try and re- I'll try and repeat the main points, and it'll be good practice for you to write fast notes. Remember when? I remember when I went to college. I had to get really good at abbreviating things. <laughs> it, it didn't quite turn into short. It didn't quite turn into shorthand. But anybody else reading it may have had a hard time understanding what I wrote. Okay, Romans chapter 6. Baptism Baptism is an outward action which reflects the inward work of the Holy Spirit in making us alive, giving us the new birth, regenerating us, okay? And it says, What shall we say then, in verse 1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, remember I said 
when, when you see the word baptism or hear the word baptism, don't necessarily think of water. This passage is not saying that when we were baptized with water, that action is what united us in Christ. This is saying that when we were saved, because he's already talked about us being justified by grace through faith and not any works that we do. Okay, This is saying that when we are saved, the Holy Spirit immerses us into a relationship with Jesus. Okay, It's called the mystical union. The scriptures speak of us being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It means that we are in a right relationship with God. Okay, Brother Rick, a couple weeks ago in preaching, quoted from a theologian who mentioned though that this union is more than just a human relationship like we have. For one reason, it's because it puts us in relationship with God, who is so much greater than we are. Secondly, it's, it's much more and greater than any human relationship because of the benefits that we receive by being united with God, because His power and grace then flow to us through our relationship in him, you see. So even though marriage is a good analogy, if, if, if you are united in holy matrimony with someone, you've been put in a special relationship with them that is different than all other relationships that you have, okay? But your spouse isn't God. <laughs> your spouse isn't Jesus. And your spouse can help you with things and you have a relationship with them in which it's mutually beneficial, but it's not like being in relationship with God who by the power of the Holy Spirit gives us grace and strength and and spiritual nourishment. This passage, though, is talking about that spiritual baptism and the water baptism represents that. But notice it says... Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in verse 3 into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. Let's try, let's try and be very plain in, how we, in, in understanding this. Let's try and make this as simple as we can. It's beautiful, glorious, and deep, but we need to be able to just understand it in its most simple form. Jesus died on the cross. What he did on that cross was that he bore the punishment that we deserve. We have have all sinned against God and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And the only way we could be made right with God is if someone who is perfect, who has never sinned, and who is actually God also, were to take our punishment on himself. And that's what Jesus did. He was our substitute. It says in Isaiah 53, God the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? So Jesus died so that we could be made alive in a relationship with God. So that we could be right with God. Okay? We, the Bible says, have old man and new man if we're believers. What is the old man? The old man is who we used to be before we were in a right relationship with God. Okay? Our old self. And our old self was characterized by old ways of loving to do things that God says no. (laughs) But those who are saved are given new desires by God. So now they don't love to sin against God anymore. Now they're sad when they sin against God and they repent and they turn from sin and fight against sin. Okay? So they're not who they used to be. So when the Bible talks about old man and new man, it's talking about who we were before we were saved. Uh, Augustine, who lived, when did he live? In the 400s? He was like late 300s, early 400s? He wrote, he wrote uh, I guess it's considered to be the first autobiography, one of the first uh, in the classic autobiography. So he wrote about his own life. And he, he was a very sinful man. He was sexually immoral. He lived with a woman to whom he was not married for many years, and he fathered children with her. And the Lord saved him. And after the Lord saved him, one day he was walking through the streets of the city, And a man saw him that used to be his friend back when he was partying and and sexually immoral. And that man came running towards him and said, hey, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is me. And he said his name. I forget his name now. And Augustine turns and starts running away from him. And the guy's running after him and say, whoa, where are you going? It's me. It's me. And Augustine looks back at him and says, yes, but it's no longer me. It's no longer I. And what is he saying there? I'm a new, I'm a new person. I'm not that person that you used to know. Okay. The Bible talks about the glorious reality that when we are born again and justified by God, we're declared to be righteous by God because we have the righteousness of Jesus now that judicially God looks at us, not as who we used to be, but who we are now in Jesus. Okay. So that's a reality. God will never see his children for who they used to be. He will always see his children for who they are in Jesus. Okay? But then the Bible also teaches us that as part of being new creatures in Christ, made alive to righteousness in God, that we're not to live like the old person anymore. Okay, so it says we're to put off our old man, our old person, with all of his deeds and ways. And that's where the Bible says we used to, we used to have sexual immoralities, it says, and we put those off. We kill those. We used to be greedy and selfish and God-haters and blasphemers and, and thieves and you know, covetous people, all of these things. But now... We're not to consider ourselves slaves to those sins anymore because 
We're not who we used to be. And so we're new people. So in that sense, we have we have died. Okay? Jesus died on the cross and we're now united in him. And when we're united in him, we die to who we used to be. Both in God's eyes, because we are seen differently by God now, but also practically then in doing righteousness. Okay? And so how does how does water baptism represent this? And this is where we who believe in credo baptism or believers being baptized and being immersed under the water, we say that it represents so well Jesus dying and being buried. And so when we go under the water, we, we are saying publicly, Jesus died for me. I am in a relationship with him. I have died now to who I used to be. Jesus rose from the dead and I have new life because he lives. And when we come up out of the water, we represent that we are now alive in Jesus because he lives and because he triumphed over death. Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Okay. So, Romans 6 here is talking about the spiritual work that God has done and how we identify with Jesus in what he has done because he's made us right with God. And then, where does water baptism come in? It just represents the spiritual reality of what took place. So this is not teaching that you have to be water baptized if you are going to be made right with God and made alive in God. Okay? You can't get that from this text. This text is is much deeper than that. So, baptism represents that we have, have died to our old sins and our old ways. And all of those were laid upon Jesus and nailed to the cross. And now, we are alive with Jesus. It also represents, I believe, the washing away of our sins. You know, water purifies, it cleanses, and it's a picture of that in the scriptures. So when we're baptized and we go under the water, it's a symbol. The water doesn't actually wash away our sins. You know, our sins aren't, it's not like our sins are all over our skin. You know, like we have, we have body oils when we sweat that come out of our skin and we get dirt that flies and lands on our skin and we've got skin cells that are sloughing off everywhere. So... Boys, that's why you have to take a bath, you know? <laughs> well, I get it. I get it. We got it. germs that land on us. You know, do you guys realize you've got millions of germs crawling all over you right now? Does that make any like, ooh, okay. Anyway, um, the reality is sin is not outward and stuck to us and all like that. And so we can get baptized and it's holy water and it's washing our sins away. It's just a picture of us being cleansed inwardly in God seeing us as clean in his sight. Okay. So baptism again means dipped, covered, immersed into. It does not always equal water in the scriptures. And so you shouldn't always just see water whenever it says baptism. Let's ask then the question of... 
why do we not think that water baptism saves us? And we're going to look at some passages of scripture that if you're not looking at them carefully, you might say, oh, well, it seems to say that we're saved by water baptism. Okay. First of all, one of the reasons I do not believe that the Bible teaches we're saved by water baptism is because the Bible in its clearest, most direct, and most thorough teaching passages teaching about how we are made right with God do not mention water baptism. Okay? First of all, passages like Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10 say, For by grace you were saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay? So it says we're saved by grace through faith, not by any works that we do. Water baptism is an external work that we do. It is a good thing that we do. We're commanded to do it, and we do it, and it is an external action. Okay? Faith is not an external action. It's an inward belief and trust in God that will bear fruit outwardly because if we're trusting God, people will see it in our lives. But it is not an outward rite or ritual or performance or practice that we do. When Ephesians chapter 2 says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works that we do, it is contrasting faith that internal trust in God with anything outwardly that we could perform, namely a work. Okay? Secondly, when the Apostle Paul in passages, in books of the Bible such as in Galatians and in Romans outlines in depth what it means to be justified before God, he does not say you must be water baptized to be justified by God. Okay? Now those who believe that you have to be water baptized in order to be justified in the sight of God will say, oh no, we don't believe that you're justified by works. But then they'll say baptism is a work of faith. Okay? Well, one problem I have with that is if baptism is a work of faith, then why is not every other work a work of faith? You know, it, the distinction there is between faith, which is an inward trusting in God, compared to anything outward that we do. Okay? But Romans chapter 1 goes into detail about the wrath of God revealed against all people because everybody's without excuse. And that they commit all types of sin. And they rejoice in other people committing sins. And that's evidence that everybody is under condemnation. Unless, then it goes on to explain that we're justified by grace through faith. And it gives Abraham as an example. And it gives circumcision as an example. And it's saying that he was justified before he did the outward external act of circumcision and that justification is by grace through faith not by any outward work of the law or external action if 
God is teaching us that, that we must be baptized to be saved, then this is the place for it where it is being thoroughly outlined in express detail how to be justified before God. And in this place it says it is by faith in the work of Jesus and it is not by any works that we do. And an outward action which was similar in some ways to baptism for us today is being given as an example of a work that could not save, you see. So, as we look at the big picture, the strongest argument in Scripture that we're not saved by water baptism is because the Bible tells us how we're saved. And that is we're saved by grace through faith in the completed work of Christ alone, not by any external deeds which we do. Okay? But what about those few passages which some would look at and say, these passages seem to indicate that you must be baptized to be saved. Let's look at a couple of those. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, so Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. And remember, Jesus who spoke so often in, phys- in uh, using physical realities to illustrate spiritual truths, tells Nicodemus that you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is scratching his head and he's like, okay, do I have to enter my mother's womb and be born a second time? What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus is explaining that here. So, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is is spirit okay so some will look at this and they'll say see it says you have to be born of water well that's talking about baptism well it doesn't mention baptism here you notice it doesn't say there's no baptizo or baptismus or anything like that in the greek behind this so the word does not mention baptism so what is jesus saying most assuredly i say unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god Notice the next verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus is contrasting two births. Notice this. Fleshly birth, spiritual birth. There are two very plausible interpretations. Possibly it's saying here, when it says born of water and the spirit, the water is referring to the fact of the natural birth. The human birth. Okay? We know that babies are floating in ambiotic fluid. You know, we even talk about a woman getting ready to give birth and we ask, has her water broken yet? Okay? Notice Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So it's very possible he's talking about the natural birth. And remember, Nicodemus was thinking in natural terms. You know, does a guy have to go into the womb and be born again? So Jesus would be simply saying somebody 
Somebody's going to be born physically, but if they're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, they've got to be born spiritually also. Physical birth isn't enough. Okay, so That's one, one possibility. A second is, in the Old Testament scriptures, and then Jesus picks up on this theme in the New Testament, God prophesies that when the Messiah comes, there will be streams of water flowing and that symbolized the Holy Spirit, which would be given through the work of Jesus. So Jesus, on the day of dedication, I think it was, at the temple at one point, is watching what the, the Jews would do as a symbolic action. They had the altar, and they would take barrels upon barrels of water and pour it on the altar and they're symbolizing that God had given them water from the rock in the wilderness. And Jesus is watching that and he proclaims on that last day, that great day of the feast, as everybody is watching that, he says, come unto me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you living water that will spring up from your belly and come forth from you. Okay? And it says he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, which would be given. So many theologians have said that when Jesus says born of water and of the spirit, that those are the water and spirit are two descriptive words that would have resonated with those who knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. And then, of course, Jesus going on to say, I am the one who will give you this through the work that I do. Okay. Well, those are two very plausible interpretations. But notice again, it doesn't, it doesn't say baptism in the text. And there's no reason to assume that Jesus is talking about water baptism. And that would, in fact, be contradicting us being saved by grace through faith because now we're adding an external right or an external action to the process of our being saved. Okay, so there's one text. That is addressed. Another is Mark chapter 16. Okay, Mark chapter 16 is brought up by those who say that you must be baptized to be saved. And as we think, as we think about this one, I, I want you to think with me, okay? Um, boys, think with me. I'm sure that you guys will be able to, to think of this or answer this for me. Is there any example of anyone in the Bible that we know who was saved and who probably was not baptized? We have no, no, we're pretty, we're very certain that after their salvation, they were, they were not baptized. True? Uh, the man on the cross that the, Jesus said that he would be Right, the thief on the cross. Okay, when we put together the gospel accounts, it actually says that initially both thieves, remember there were two thieves, one on either side of Jesus, were reviling Jesus and making fun of Jesus. But then one of them came to repentance and he turned to his fellow on the other side and he said, wait a minute, this guy's innocent. We are up here because of our own sins and we deserve to die, but he doesn't. And then he looks at Jesus and he, and he says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? We got to get you off here so you can get baptized because you're not entering the kingdom of heaven unless you get wet. <laughs> No, what does he say? This day you will be with me in paradise. Um, possibly by saying, you know, unique example, you know, before um, you have, you know, uh, the completed work of Christ, 
Lewis, maybe you've heard something more specific. I was told that that was under the old covenant, and there's a new yeah. change, and that isn't exactly what they said in the new covenant. Right. So that's why I feel like Got converted to Church of Christ. So. Right, right. So, nope, that was just, you know, that's just an old covenant example, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's a solid argument. One, were people under the old covenant saved differently than we are saved now? No. Were people under the old covenant saved by works and now we're saved by grace or, you know, has there been any major change? No, people have always been saved by grace through faith in God and his promises to them. We now look back on the work of Jesus and we know more than many did in the old covenant. We see Jesus risen from the dead, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. So there were those who read the scriptures in the Old Testament times and knew the Messiah would be raised from the dead. But... There has been no change in how God saves. He has always saved by grace, through faith, before the cross. It was based in the promises of the Messiah who would come after the cross. It's based on the Messiah who has come. And when Christ was on the cross and completed his work, he secured the salvation of all those who came before and all who will come after. So no one was ever saved apart from the atoning work of Jesus. It's just that there was an, I hesitate to use the word IOU because God doesn't know anybody, but there, there was a promissory note for those under the old covenant time that when the fullness of time comes and the Messiah comes, your redemption is guaranteed. Because he is going to come. And for us, he has come and we look back. Okay? So, does that, does that make sense? Alright. We have to be careful not to think that God has changed in his manner of salvation. And so thus, we can look at the thief on the cross. How was that thief on the cross saved? He looked to Jesus in faith. And he had faith in God. And he was saved by grace through faith. And he didn't have to be baptized, neither do we. Okay. Eric? Where is this verse in Mark 16? We're getting there. We've been answering uh, some very good questions. Yeah, and now we're working towards Mark 16. Into the chapter. Towards the end of the chapter. Last half of, uh, of the chapter. I'll get the exact verse when I get there. Okay. Mark chapter 16, and we're going to look at verse 16 here in a moment. That'll be the main text. I, I'm, I'm, going to make, I'm going to make a brief statement here. You know, this is helpful at least for us to know, because if you don't know it, you will encounter this sometime. You may see a note. If you have any notes in your Bible, even my Bible, which has very few notes or profit, it doesn't have any cross references or study notes or anything in it. It has a little note and it says after 16.8, it says the NU text and the M text omit. And what this is indicating is that the New Testament 
is written in Greek, and we have over 5,000 manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts that record the New Testament for us. Okay? And some of those date back to within 30 to 50 years of the time that they were actually written. So the New Testament has more manuscript evidence for it than any other ancient work of literature. All right? As scholars, biblical scholars who, who translate the scriptures, as they put together all of these different manuscripts and compared them with one another, there are some slight differences between them here and there. And initially, when I, when I first began to study this, I, I was like, oh, wow, oh, no. But then I was like, oh, okay, no problem. The reality is that they were copying by hand. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have Xerox. You know, we don't have Xerox machines anymore. Xerox machines are outdated, right? That's like saying cassettes. They didn't have cassette players back then. Uh, we're like way past cassette players. CDs are outdated now. Yeah, right. So, biblical textual scholars will take all of the available manuscript evidence and through hundreds of years of translating the scriptures, they have... They have discovered all types of principles to help guide how to interpret and then translate these various manuscripts. Okay? And there'll be variations from one manuscript to another, for instance. But sometimes it's as simple as there'll be two words, and in one manuscript, one word comes first and then the other, and then the other one, that order is reversed. In the Greek, it doesn't make that much difference because it's not like English where you have subjects, verbs, and everything, and they're in a particular order. In Greek, the endings of the words will help indicate what part of speech it is, etc., etc. But it'll be things like word orders reversed, a word spelled differently. But if they've got, if they've got 400 manuscripts that they're looking at of the same passage or text, and you have one of those manuscripts that spells the word differently, and the 399 spell it the same, then that's clear to see, whoops, there was a scholar who accidentally spelled it wrong right there. And so they compare the different manuscripts. We did an exercise once. I actually taught a, a class early on on all of this subject of how did we get the scriptures and all of the ins and outs of biblical translation. And we did a little exercise where... I passed out, and there were about 30 people in the congregation. I passed out to people a quotation. And it was a short quotation by C.S. Lewis. And I told everyone who had this quotation, I want you to, to copy it by hand and make at least one deliberate error. And then Peggy Gant was our scribe. And so we took her this stack of 30 papers that all had some portion of the original statement but every single one had an error. She lined all those out in front of her and then within five minutes perfectly reconstructed down to the letter of the spelling the original quotation. That's the process of examining the textual evidence, okay? But here's where we're going with what I'm saying about these latter verses in the chapter of Mark. There are only a couple of passages in the scriptures where an entire segment of several verses 
is questioned by biblical scholars as to whether it was in the original. And the reason it would be questioned is that there would be such little manuscript support for it. Okay? For instance, there's a there's a verse in 1 John chapter 5 and the only manuscripts that that verse is contained in, there are only a, a very few of all of the manuscripts of 1 John and the only ones that have that verse are ones that were transcribed like as late as the 10th century. And none of the earlier manuscripts contain that verse. Okay? So originally it was included in the King James Version because Erasmus, who had put together a New Testament, a Greek New Testament of the Scriptures, didn't have as many manuscripts as we have today. And today... Because we have those manuscripts and we have dig- digital technology and you know you can get you can go online and you can read all those manuscripts and their originals, people can see a wider range. It was harder back then before they could travel and before they had internet and all that to have access to all the different copies. Okay, so there are some verses contested. The last few verses here in the in the book of Mark, it's one such passage where. Biblical scholars look at it and say there's just not a whole lot of strong support in the original manuscripts for the passage of Scripture. Now, I don't, to tell you where I'm coming from, there's nothing in this section that either can't be supported from other passages of Scripture or gives anything distinctive that that we say we must have and there's nowhere else in the Bible that can teach us this, Okay. So I'll put it I'll put it in this way there's not a single essential doctrine of the faith that depends on any disputed passage of scripture not one okay does that make sense that's very comforting to me there's not a single essential doctrine of the faith core doctrine of the faith orthodox doctrine of the faith that depends on a disputed passage of scripture we can find all of the essential orthodox doctrines of the faith in the rest of the Bible. Lewis? In Mark 16, the latter end, is one of them, two or three that have been argued for centuries upon centuries. Right. I mean, it's not a new thing that people are arguing about. They argued about a thousand years ago about some of the things that they are not. So. Right, right, absolutely. Eric? That was probably back when this doctrine you were um, yeah, there, there, there have been people uh, throughout the ages who believe that they were saved by baptism. Yes. Okay. Well, even with that said, looking at what this verse says, I don't think that it teaches that you have to be baptized to be saved. So let's look at the verse. We're going to close with this one. We'll pick up the rest of this study the next time we meet. Okay. Notice this. It says, he said to them, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay? And here's what those who believe in baptismal regeneration say. Those who say you must be baptized in order to be saved. They say this is a conditional statement. And it says he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Therefore... If you are not baptized, you will not be saved. I was listening to a debate between a man who holds this 
baptismal regeneration view and a man who holds the position I hold to. The man who holds baptismal regeneration view said, think of it this way. This is the same form of speech. He said, when I was a kid, if my daddy said, you need to pull one bucket of weeds out of the garden and hoe one row of potatoes and then you can go swimming. He said, we would have known that if we had only gone out and pulled the bucket of weeds, but we didn't hold the row in the garden and then went swimming, we were going to come back and our backside was going to be smart because we were going to get a whooping. Okay? So he said, it's as simple as that. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. It's as simple as that. All you have to do is read it. That means if you're not baptized, you're not saved. Okay? Well, there's a problem with that. That may seem simple and it may seem like that's what it's saying, but it's not a conditional statement. It's not a conditional statement in the Greek. It's not a conditional statement in the English. Okay, and the Greek has a, a, and I'm not a Greek language scholar, but the other person was arguing against this man, saying the Greek has a, a, a perfectly clear way to distinguish if then, and it does not use that here. This is just a factual statement. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Do we believe he who believes and is baptized will be saved? Absolutely. So we're believing exactly what this text is saying at face value. If somebody believes and if they're baptized, they'll be saved. Does that mean, though, that if somebody believes but they're never baptized, that they will not be saved? No. It doesn't mean that. This is just a factual statement. And notice this. Exactly. Notice, notice the flip side here. Notice it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe and does it say and is not baptized will be condemned? No, it doesn't. It just says he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay? It does not include baptism there. Now, that would be a fairly clear statement if it said, he who is not baptized will be condemned. And so unless we could prove that it was talking about spiritual baptism and not water baptism, we'd be up a creek. But it doesn't say that. And it very deliberately doesn't say that. Okay? So the illustration that Stephen Gamble used as he was refuting this baptismal regeneration view, he said, he said, if you did, and he used a local university, the University of Tennessee, he said, if, if you told somebody that he who enrolls in University of Tennessee and lives on the campus um, is a student of University of Tennessee. He's saying you're not necessarily saying that somebody has to live on campus to be a student. But you're just making a factual statement that the person who does these things is a student there. Okay? But it does not exclude somebody living off campus. And again, we see examples in scripture like the thief on the cross who was never baptized, but yet he was saved. But here's the key. The Bible does command that we be baptized as believers. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. All right. The Bible commands it. Any person who says, yes, I'm saved, and then they refuse to be baptized may be indicating that they're not really saved because why would they not follow a clear commandment of the Lord that they be baptized? Mm -hmm. 
Okay? So baptism can be an evidence or a fruit that the Lord has done a work in the life. But it is not a work which brings one into right relationship with God. Okay? And this passage does not teach that it does make one right with God. It's just a factual statement. Okay? Well, next time, with the Lord's help, we'll look at some other passages that are used to support baptismal regeneration and we'll conclude that particular study.